Our guests today are the Vicious Brothers, Colin Minahan and Stuart Ortiz. The Vicious Brothers are the writing-directing collaboration between two 25-year-old filmmakers who first met through a filmmaking web form in 1999 and bonded through their shared love of horror and sci-fi films along with um, a mutual hatred Hmm, of film school. Interesting. Together they've written four feature film scripts and collaborated on dozens of media projects. Their debut feature film, Grave Encounters, has recently acquired domestic distribution through Tribeca Film and had its world premiere at the 2011 Tribeca Film Festival. The trailer for the film, which they produced themselves, quickly went viral on the internet and gathered 1.5 million YouTube hits in only three months. It now has close to 21 million hits. Grave Encounters follows Lance Preston and the crew of Grave Encounters, a ghost hunting reality television show, shooting an episode inside the abandoned psychiatric hospital where unexplained phenomenon has been reported for years. In order to play up for the cameras and audience, the group voluntarily locked themselves inside the building for the night and begin a paranormal investigation capturing everything on camera. They quickly realize that the building is more than just haunted, it is alive, and it has no intention of ever letting them leave. Please welcome to Film Courage via telephone, Colin Minahan and Stuart Ortiz. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Hey, we're doing great. How are you? Good. Excellent. Yeah. Doing well. Doing very well. There Good. they both are. Yeah. yeah, we're connected to the Vicious Brothers. You can connect with Stu and Colin on Twitter at Vicious Bros. You can you can also make sure to follow at Grave Encounters. We do love to read tweets on the air. Our handle at Film Courage. All right. Well, again, thanks so much for joining us today, and we're so impressed with your trailer and the following that you've gained. We want to just jump right in and ask you just real quickly, which film is scarier? Paranormal activity or grave encounters? <laughs> Dude, well, you. No pressure. Paranormal activity is way, way scarier. Okay. Paranormal uh, activity made a lot more money, so it must be scarier. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You know, um, uh, you know, and it's uh, you know, forgive us. It's hard not to draw up comparisons to paranormal activity. You know, when you see sort of a found footage film like this, you know, one, one thing we want yeah, to jump into um, right off the bat is is what is the best moment that this film has brought to you guys? You know, is it something that happened in production? Is it the day the trailer went viral? Is it the world premiere at Tribeca? You know, what is the moment? Um, that you know that sort of made making this film worth all the effort that you guys have put into it. Oh, man, that's a yeah. I, I don't know if there was one event. You know, is I there, think from go ahead. Like it's 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 like the theatrical experience. It's always it's always really important, really awesome to see it. So just doing festivals and seeing seeing old men curled up in their seats crying while they're watching it because they're so scared they can't keep their eyes on the screen is always very satisfying kind of <laughs> conducting conducting the audience like that with a scary movie and getting them involved so definitely for me I think the, the whole like seeing it in the big screen or whatever is always a lot of excitement there mm-hmm. so the audience reaction rather than sort of the accolades is more is more important. yeah absolutely yeah. it's about the audience it's about, it's about them being you know enamored within that okay. setting for that hour and a half that they're there for interesting you know i mean 
you know, I hate to bring this up. I mean, the film got turned, you know, it's Sundance season right now, and the film did get turned down by Sundance and other big-name festivals, but, you know, that was before you received word from Tribeca, or, you know, afterward you received word from Tribeca, and you had your world premiere there. What was your sort of state of mind or, or mental attitude when these, you know, the festivals before Tribeca kind of turned you guys away? What were you guys thinking then, and, and were you thinking towards self-distribution as an option for the way you guys would release the film? Uh, we got rejected uh, you know, from other festivals. We were definitely bummed out. And, you know, it's always discouraging because you want to try to get into one of those top-level tier uh, festivals if you can because obviously that just helps your shot at getting the film out there and getting, you know, more visibility to the film and helping you get, you know, distribution possibly. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were bummed out, but... We kind of we felt like you know, I don't even remember easy. really what I don't even really remember what the film was submitted to because we didn't really handle the the festival submissions like we signed on with a foreign sales and did pretty quickly ArcLight in L A that represents a ton of movies and takes them to various yeah. markets and forth. <coughs> I so think we they, went to Sundance and we went to Toronto. Yeah, it might have been. I don't. I'm not sure. But then the uh, the guy at Tribeca. Tribeca is much like in the same vein as Sundance now, where they're kind of doing their own distribution as well. Like obviously mm-hmm. there's the Sundance channel, and then there's Tribeca Film now. So it's kind of interesting to see these film festivals buying the movies that are they're actually, you know, they're using the festival in a way to to launch their own content as well as to premiere new stuff. So it's important to be able to get into kind of any of those major festivals in order to get seen by the right people. But I don't think, um, not with this film, we never really talked about self-distribution. I mean, I think in order for self-distribution to be really effective, you need to have quite a big following. Maybe it'll work if you're someone like Kevin Smith that has like a million Twitter followers and you can kind of cut out the middleman and go directly to your audience. It's kind of a no-brainer in that in that scenario. You know, if it's like Lewis or something selling a comedy show or whatever it's like he's already got this huge following that reaching that audience is made a lot simpler but I think if you're you know if you're starting fresh and you don't that have that following doing doing that on you know going to consume years of your life and and once you're done making a film you already put so much of yourself into it that you know trying to sell it and it's a whole other animal. So I don't you think know, it, it, it's interesting to hear you say that because you know the, when you release a trailer online, it goes viral, over a million views. I mean, a lot of people we talk to don't have that kind of success or that kind of demand of people, you know, viewing their trailer and potentially wanting to see their film. How do you yeah, react? I mean, to, how do you react to that side of it? Because there, there are people that that, that do want to see this film. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, YouTube, like being a breakout viral thing on there is obviously super challenging and kind of random but you really need to work at that sort of thing too you know when i think like Stu and i cut the trailer ourselves before we actually had a u.s distributor in place and i think we were just bored and we were kind of just like you know what this isn't happening quick enough let's just stick it online and and let's see what happens and and you know see if some momentum can build people will get to notice it that way so that was really our motivating factor Putting the trailer online, it wasn't like, you know, YouTube doesn't have the buy now button and you can stick right next to the thing. So it's kind of hard to, even if, even if they're, even if kids are seeing it on there, they're most likely going to go see, see if it's available on Pirate Bay five seconds later. <laughs> how did you drum up um, interest in the trailer? I mean, how did you, you know, what did you do to kind of make it 
get so many hits or did you not do anything? You just put it out there and it, it took off. We just pretty much put it out there. Uh, yeah, the, well, the, we, we put it up on our own account and it really wasn't getting that much traffic. But then this other guy that has a channel on YouTube that has a bunch of horror trailers, it's called Hordnance, who already has kind of a following. He, he basically re-hosted it onto his channel and then that's when it blew up because he already had uh, some followers. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I think that additionally, though, there was, you know, he was like emailing all the major blog sites that are independently run, and we were getting a lot of, we were getting a fair bit of press at the time. I mean, like maybe three months after it had been on, the Tribeca Film Festival thing started happening. So then, you know, there was a lot of, we were doing a lot of press for that, so it was able to gain momentum there as well. Mm, okay. Uh, we, we got on Twitch Film and we got on Any Cool News. And uh, Bloody Disgusting and sites like that, I think definitely drew awareness. And you guys approached them? You emailed them? Or did they come to you? We're just wondering how, like, cause it's yeah. taking that proactive... Well, I think it was, it's, mostly, it's mostly, like, the publicist from, like, the festival or, or whatever okay. was, you know, doing the rant. Yeah, it's, it's really tough because, like, uh, our, you know, when we were, didn't have a distributor signed on, we had been hitting up Bloody Disgusting pretty much like every day just being like hey check out our trailer would you mind like posting this or whatever they pretty much ignored us completely i think until we actually had a uh, u.s distributor on board and then that completely just changed the game then like overnight they were you know posting about it right right built credibility now you both have probably ignoring us because we turned down their sales (laughs) (laughs) they tried to buy the movie (laughs) oh i see okay well, now you both have a fascination with the other world, and we understand, Colin, that you almost have sort of a mediumistic quality to you, where spirits are drawn to you, or you're perceptive enough to pick up That's on a rumor. them. Well, I thought we've heard it in another interview, so we're just curious yeah, how that uh, has taken place. You're just uh, you're sensitive enough to feel other entities in the room, or they're they're drawn to you. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's few and far between when something like that does happen, but there, I, I have been known to uh, experience a few hauntings in my life okay. that are kind of, you know, I blow my mind and they make me more attracted to the subject matter of ghosts than making a ghost film because it's just something that I don't understand, but something that I can't explain that, you know, I've encountered a few times in my life. Okay. Well, are there stories that either one of you can? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, I mean, like, there's a, there's really, there's this time when I was, I was actually in San Jose, staying at this old, old house, shooting a music video, and um, and in the middle of the night, there's all these crazy sounds, and uh, I heard like, just things that you, 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 my eyes are wide open, and there's nobody in the room with me, but. Someone running along the wood floor panels right in front of me, and and hear a bang on the wall, and look towards the bang, and there's nobody there. And then learned later that there was this whole thing that happened at the house. So just stuff like that, you know. There's you heard a baby, like, didn't you? You heard like a baby. Yeah, sign yeah. Thing, right? I heard. I yeah. I heard a baby, and I heard like this shaking, rattling sound coming up and down the hallway, and I couldn't figure out for the life of me what the hell this was. And then you know like. Day I ask the uh, I'm like straight up to the owner of that I'm like this place is completely haunted. Tell me what happened. And uh, turned out like this baby, this uh, couple owners ago, there was a 
a, a baby and the father put like a rattling, like a shaker toy that's like a double-sided thing, but he didn't notice that when he played in the movie that it was like broken in the middle and oh. and the baby ended up getting the, the thing the, throat, mm. the thing lodged in its throat and mm. the dad tried to get it out but every time he tried oh, to reach in to get it out he just kept pushing it further down and down and the baby died and so mm. I'm hearing the remnants of this dad and his baby in the middle of the night so there's oh. definitely some weird stuff in the world <laughs> wow mm. So we understand that the two of you have had cameras in your hands for most of your lives. Can you tell us about the first time that you picked up a camera? And why? This is, I, I don't know, man. We both have. I mean, I pretty much, like, literally grabbed my parents' old VHS camera, like, when I was probably four or five and just started. It was, like, such an old camera that it literally was, like, tethered to the VCR by, like, a cable. Like, it wasn't really portable. So the first two years or three years of movies I shot are all, like, from one angle, pretty much, like, in my living room, my parents' living room. But uh, back in the day, I was just puppet. shooting, like, puppet shows. Yeah, a lot of puppet shows. Uh, <laughs> literally, when I was, like, four years old, I would start, like, just shooting puppet shows, and then, like, it just it just went on from there. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a similar, similar thing. I, I think I was probably, like, eight years old, and I discovered my mom's video camera, and... You know, I was really into, like, action movies and stuff at the time and playing guns with my friends, and we'd just recreate different scenes from different movies basically every day after school, and it uh, kind of never stopped doing that to a certain extent. <laughs> so, there you go. And, and when did that switch happen for, it, were you, for you guys where you said, you know what, this isn't just fun and games, this isn't just a hobby anymore, like, you know, I want to do this. This, this is kind of what I'm passionate about. This is what I love. Like, was there a switch you know, where that became the case? I think that there was yeah, definitely, yeah. There was a moment where, yeah, me, you know, me and Colin had been friends uh, for a while, and we'd talked online, and, and we'd also met in real life a couple times, and, you know, we were, we kind of collaborated one time. Colin uh, was, like, the DOP on, like, this short film that I was trying to make, and we were kind of, like, working together on stuff like that, but... At some point, we just kind of started talking about the idea of, of just writing a script. It, it wasn't even, let's make a movie. It was just like, let's just try to write a script. So we went up to Vancouver Island, where Colin's mom lives. Basically, you know, went down into a basement and just started smoking a bunch of weed and just, like, tripping out down there listening to the sound, to movie soundtracks. And we ended up writing, basically, our, our first feature-length script. And, uh, unfortunately, it was probably because how just stoned we were and how crazy we were, we ended up being this thing that was just way too ambitious to really to really do at the time. In terms of money, it was just going to be too expensive. And then, yeah. so, we basically kind of went back to the drawing board and came up with another script, and again, it ended up being way too ambitious. Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, that helped. That got the budget down a bit. <laughs> even that, but even that script, again, was too ambitious, and then I think we even wrote... A third one? I can't remember what it was, but at some point we basically said, okay, this is ridiculous. We need to actually write something that, you know, we can make for, like, no money. And then and right. we, we had toyed a long time with the idea of, should we do a found footage thing? Should we do maybe something, like, along the lines of Blair Witch Project? But we didn't really want to do that because it's just, it's such an opposite kind of spectrum of, you know, traditional narrative filmmaking that, that we love. And uh, it's, you know, it's way more just 
it looks like crap, and it, it's supposed to have this like kind of amateur feel to it. So we kind of had avoided it, I think, for a long time. But then at some point, it was just like, well, you know, we had heard it. We actually hadn't even seen Paranormal Activity yet when we uh, wrote the script for Grave Encounters, although we'd heard of it. And we'd seen, like, the trailer and seen some bugs I about it, so we knew what the yet. idea was. But it wasn't even out yet. <clears throat> we, we were really more influenced by, I think, like, Blair Witch Project. And there's a couple of these other movies. There's, like, this great found footage alien abduction film from, like, the uh, mid-'90s that's called The McPherson Project, where there's, like, this family on Thanksgiving, and, like, they end up getting terrorized by aliens and stuff. And uh, we were kind of more just influenced by that and, obviously, these ghost hunting shows. But uh, that that was definitely the moment where we, our mentality really switched to just the practical uh, reality of it, of that mm-hmm. we want to make something, but we don't have very much money, so we need to write yeah, something that we can actually money. do. I, yeah, totally. Like I, we we've been trying to get money to do one of our other scripts, and it's just like you know, not having a true understanding of just the business of of film and being more looked at as especially myself, looked at exclusively as, like, a music video director, because that's what I've been doing for the past, you know, 10 years or whatever. So I think it's 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 important, you know, to... We, we just had to look at it from a different perspective and say, you know what, no one's going to help us make this but ourselves, so we should, we should work up this idea because we know that we can achieve it for, you know, at least, you know, the money that's in our bank account and that we had to, had to mm-hmm. do just that. So that's why I think that was our motivating factor to making a found footage for sure. Well, you guys both saved up what thirty grand each, isn't that what you said in another interview? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a nice uh, chunk of change. Yeah, and then we, we <laughs> had another investor who spent okay. like a lot more than that to help us finish the film because basically you can get you can get so far in production, but then ultimately when when you sign a distribution contract and stuff, you, you need mm-hmm. to be able to hand over all the deliverables that, that, um, mm-hmm. that add up into the hundreds of thousands pretty quickly. So, you know, by that point, we were, we were well on our way, though, and able mm-hmm. to get the rest of the money. Any budget tips you can pass along? I mean, 30 grand is a nice chunk of change. Um, any... Well, I think, that, I think that, you know, just you, I think in this day and age, there's actually a really great article that Edward Burns does an interview recently just talking about the state of filmmaking and, and uh, video on demand and stuff like that, but... But, like, I'll use his film as an example because it's even better, but um, with his new film, Newlyweds, they, mm-hmm. he, he basically just did the low-budget union agreement. The same deal as we did for actors. You're paying actors, like, 100 bucks a day, but you're also giving them a piece of the back end if, they have, if the film ever goes on to make money or get the distribution deal. But, I mean, cameras and stuff are so cheap in this day and age. You can, you can go buy a 5D and some lenses for, you know, a few thousand dollars and all of a sudden you've got yourself a camera package that's, you know, as long as it's in the right hands, is, is completely applicable to shooting a motion picture with, essentially. So um, it's really just a matter of your own personal drive and, and having a script that, you know, if you're not shutting down streets doing car chases, you're you're working within the reality that, that you're presenting to the audience. And it's keeping the scale of the production smaller. But, you know, keeping scale small sometimes is a good thing. So mm-hmm. sometimes re-looking at things and, and being like, you know, how can we approach this from from a cheaper perspective ultimately make, forces you to become more creative. So I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of in, independent films being made for, 
for similar kind of prices, and they all kind of end up around a hundred grand by the end of it, even if they're, you know, penny pinching and not casting crew or whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's just delivering a movie is really expensive. So I think that you can't really get away from from spending that kind of money, but you can definitely shoot production really cheaply with with the technology that's out there and and just using natural light, you know. Well, I want to go back to when you guys did meet on this filmmaking forum online. I mean, how did you know that you could trust one another? It's hard in this day and age. You meet people online, and they seem cool, and then you meet them in person, and it's just you see they have an agenda. So how did you know over the years that, okay, I can trust this person, and we can work together? It, it pretty much just started because I think, you know, we were we were the only people that we had met on this filmmaking forum that I guess were kind of the same age, but really just that we were really genuinely impressed by the other person's work. Like, there's a lot of people on, it was this one, it was like basically the, there, I think it was the original filmmaking forum that existed on the internet. It was this forum called Like a Story, and it vanished, I don't know, 1999 or 2000 or something like that. It's long, long gone. But that's, that's where we met, and uh, yeah, I think it's just like we were just impressed by what we were doing, so there was our, there was a mutual respect, and then when we we were always talking online too, just chatting, <clears throat> and even through that we, yeah, we yeah, just I mean, just like kind of clicked, and then we, when we we finally met in real life a couple of years later, it was just like, you know, we just clicked. I think you know pretty instantly. Mm -hmm. It was yeah, like, I yeah, I get this guy. We, we speak the same language to each other before we even met too, though. Right? Like there mm -hmm. were years of just like talking on instant messenger and like you know. I remember my mom walking by and I was like talking to some pervert online or whatever and I'm like, oh, it's just you and she's like, who the fuck is that? That's awesome. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think after a certain while we just, we realized that we were kind of thinking on very similar wavelengths when we talked about movies mm -hmm. that we liked and movies that we were interested in making and just stuff like that and then finally meeting in person. I think after we met in person it was like, you know, another three years or whatever until we decided to actually do something cool together. So, mm. so yeah, over definitely time. Definitely a slow burn. Right, right. Before we before we even met, Colin had been working on this film that he was making this this thing called Choice and uh, we would stay up pretty much all night and he would send me little scenes and be like, what do you think? And I'd be like, you should make this a little bit longer, make this shot ten frames longer, do this, do that or whatever. And just going back and forth and then there was a point where Colin proposed the idea of, and we hadn't met yet in real life, but that we could meet on screen. So I had actually uh, like painted a blue screen wall like in uh, in one of the rooms of my houses. My dad didn't even know I was going to do that. I just he just came home one day and discovered that I painted an entire wall blue, and he was not too stoked, but he went along with it. But anyway, with a you know a blue screen, you can basically shoot a shot of whatever on the blue screen, and then you can composite that into another shot. So Colin filmed a, a shot of him walking, just walking by the camera. Yeah, and then I uh, filmed a shot of me on the blue screen walking by the camera and kind of acting like he had knocked into me or whatever, like looking at him. And then uh, I sent him the file, and then he composited that in, and then that's how the fir that's basically how we first met, was on screen. So yeah. there you go. Oh, very cool. Well, I understand that you both have a mutual hatred of film school. Did either of you attend film school? Did you have a, a bad experience there? What's your argument? against film schools. Yeah, we both went to film school. I think 
I think that just was a little a sound bite that we used in the bio just to sound crazy. Hey, film school. I went to a an art school for one year. It, I didn't like it at all, but I mean, to be fair, super, super, very experimental, very liberal, very art-minded film program. And I mean, like, the on the extreme side of the spectrum, I mean, they would show us, like, films where it would be, like, literally 20 minutes of, like, white, with just, like, a scratching sound effect, literally. And that would be, like, someone's film. And then people would talk about it really seriously afterwards. And it, I was only there for a few months before I was just looking around and being like, man, I do not belong in here. I want to be making, like, you know, Terminator 2 or something like that. And then so I just kind of basically stopped going to class and started working on making this other film, just kind of this action-adventure film with some other guy that was going there. And uh, I remember I would show parts, parts of it in class, and all the students just were like, man, this is just Hollywood, just Hollywood bullshit. Like, this is so, like, <laughs> derivative and shitty and stuff like that. And, like, I just had no one there that too. I <laughs> Huh? There was some dope stuff you were doing, too. Um, I, so dis I think it's really discouraging. It can be really discouraging when you're put in an environment like that where, you know, you're kind of cast as an outsider because what you're doing is a lot more mainstream than the other people. And from my film school, <clears throat> I mean, my perspective is, like, I just remember the first day of class and, like, basically schooling the editing teacher. Like, he was, like, trying to teach us something, some, like, white transition right thing like Ocean's Eleven or something like that and he was trying to tell us how it was done and I had to make him go frame by frame and, and correct him as to how it was done because he wasn't teaching it right. So, um, and he, you know, he was like, oh crap, I, I wasn't. And it, that was like the first day of, of school. So I, mm. it was just, I'd, I'd been working on my, my own stuff so much and taught myself just, you know, everything that I, that I knew at the time. So going into the program and, and, you know, the faculty wasn't very supportive and Dean was a total bitch. Uh, it, just, it, was, it, it was a downer because you're there and you're like, they're teaching kids how to like hit the red button on a camera and what exposure is and like, just like wasting money on all this shit that I've already taught myself. So I think if you've already picked up a camera, a much better investment. It's just, and, and the other thing is just kids don't finish anything once they're out of film school like they have like this they train you so much through the education system that it's important to get good grades and kind of carry that forward into post-secondary and, and film school obviously so you get all these kids that are just making things to try and achieve a letter grade but then if you graduate the program they think that you know a certificate is going to be worth something it, it's obviously not but it's the sham of film school in general is that they convince these kids that don't know anything about filmmaking or anything about the industry that they're going to get jobs with a piece of, piece of paper. And I'd see it all the time, and I knew right away. Like, I knew when I went there that it was, it was not how it worked. But I went there anyways just because I grew up in such a small town, and I needed to get the hell away from it to the city. So the one positive thing was just being around <clears throat> being around people that were, that were uh, into film. And that was kind of the first time in my life other than, knowing Stu that I was surrounded by other people mm -hmm. that wanted to make film even if they didn't know what they were doing and they were just like that, that was a positive experience from it but but just being there and you know they never like going back to what I'm saying how they're working for a letter grade it's really disappointing because you see like 50 kids graduate and you know two of them end up working in the film industry and the rest of them end up working at McDonald's or something like that because they really never knew what they wanted to do in the first place so they never really had uh, that drive for sure <clears throat> 
I think film school is is a, the only use it has is if you just have no technical training whatsoever in how to do anything with film, how to shoot a scene, how to light stuff, etc. Then film school film school is good for them. Fucking open up Google, please. Google, yeah. man. You're Forty grand. But I mean, the reality of the industry is it's so much more than that. I mean, you know, there's a whole business side that they never talk about, and I really think the honestly, the only way that you can really learn that stuff is just to do it and to experience it. You know? Do you think having that degree almost hinders you in some way uh, from taking risks that I think you kind you of need? show it? I think. Mm -hmm. if you Oh, maybe from taking risks? Yeah, because they have that piece of paper and they're like, hey, you know what? I put in all this time and this money and I have to get this quote-unquote sort of real film job, whereas more the, the DIY sort of rebels go out and do it themselves because they have less riding right. on the fact that they they didn't have all that. I, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think I think just for most for most kids, you know, they're probably perfectly happy getting a camera operating at the local news station for the next 10 years. Well, film school is good for that kind of thing, but I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I'm giving a biased example. I can only speak for the film school that I was at. I don't know, maybe UCLA's film school or whatever is amazing, and New York Film Academy is awesome. I don't know, I haven't been there. So, you know, from our perspective, I think that that it's a bit of a joke. So, and I definitely agree that it that it, it, it probably makes kids not want to take those risks, and they don't really encourage those risks. At least none of the teachers that I had were, you know, showing us Rebel without a crew and telling us to just fuck film school, go make a movie. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. saying that. They're selling the idea that you need this certificate, you need to show up and pay your tuition fees. <laughs> Sell your blood for medical tests. Yeah. No, we are. I love getting into the film school debate here. We are on the line with the Vicious Brothers, Stuart Ortiz and Colin Minahan. Let's jump back into Grave Encounters and really curious how you guys were able to get the psychiatric hospital as the primary location for the film. Do you want to take this one? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's just a, it's a location uh, that we knew about. It's a, a you know, it's a well-known filming location here in Vancouver that has been shot at a million times for a million different things. X-Files has shot a bunch of episodes there, and it's like, I think it's one of the most heavily filmed at locations in Canada. <clears throat> so we, we knew about the yeah, location. because a lot of Colin, control there, too. Yeah, Colin shot like a Papa Roach music video there and like a bunch of other videos. So when, I mean, it was just like when we came up with the idea for the film, we knew right away that we were going to shoot it there. That would be the place to do it. And we wrote the script based around the location and what, what we knew was there. So, oh, that's great. You know, yeah, it's, we it's, definitely we wrote for the most production value, just knowing the location in and out. Like, the, there's a scene in the in the film where they're, they're they're hiding in this like room with all these decrepit bathtubs that are just strewn out all over the place, and it looks like it's probably our design, but if not, we wrote the scenes because we knew those bathtubs were in there, <laughs> and it was an amazing looking spot. So, you know, it's such a great location as well. You know, and and you're mentioning. You know the, the you know building the script around you know what you knew you had. You know how how detailed was was the script you know that you wrote for the Grave Encounters. You know because it, it is a found footage film, and with a film like this, you want to make it seem authentic. So you, you know you know I would believe that you'd want to leave room to have the actors be free and and have improv. You know so can you talk about um, you know how detailed was the script? How how far did you take that? And and how much room was there for for improv? We wrote a full, pretty much 80-page script 
because you know there, there's a couple of different approaches I think you can have to a, a found footage film. Like I know that on Blair Witch Project, I don't think they had like I don't think they literally had a shooting script at all. I think they had kind of a rough outline of kind of scenes and, and what was going to happen, but just in a real rough way. Mm-hmm. And I mean th- th- those actors were literally out in the woods by themselves filming everything themselves. And I think from what I understand is that the directors would leave them like little packages in, in areas because they had a GPS that would explain plot points, like n- new things that were going to happen. But then sometimes they would just outright surprise them and shit in the middle of the night. So it was very, very just, you know, they were catching everything super candidly. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, you can have a, a film like, uh, what's, what's an example? Something like uh, Quarantine, which, which is the American remake of Wreck, which is, you know, I'm assuming it's just is completely scripted. Every single line is like is scripted. And uh, I think, you know, we, we kind of wanted to land somewhere in the middle. We knew that we needed to write a full script because, you know, we were paying X amount of dollars for the location per day, so we couldn't just be kind of goofing off and not knowing what we were doing. So we knew we needed to have, you know, a full script that we could go off as a, as a framework, basically. But at the same time, we definitely went in there being really open to doing, you know, improv. How many cameras did you use? A lot. Uh, the actors were rolling as well because, I mean, you were trying to create the, you know, the reality television ghost hunting aesthetic that everyone's really familiar with and it very much is a parody of those shows. If, if, you know, if there's anyone listening that's seen those those shows and, and is into them, it's, it's basically, you know, a group of ghost hunters. And it, we really wanted it to, to look and feel like that. So cameras are super cheap for that kind of thing because you're talking about shooting on like an HDV night vision camera for a lot of the, a lot of the scenes. And and um, I think ultimately we probably had like maybe like eight cameras on set, and sometimes all of them were rolling. Oh wow! Okay. It's a lot of a lot of cameras to be looking at. But the primary camera, uh, either Stu or I was operating with an actor behind us. And we basically just rerun the scene um, from from the other angles as well, with uh, with the actor fake filming or or he was real filming, but you know you never not we didn't have really time to put them through a proper crash course. So their cinematography was a bit jank, so we'd have to <laughs> go in there and make sure that we got the stuff that we knew we needed. But um, but yeah, even going back to the script, I think that when we wrote the script, it was it was really uh, we left a lot of the scenes wide open in problems, and we just knew point A, B, C, and where it needed to go and let the actors work out the rest. And it was interesting because actors are obviously give them that much freedom and they're just going to run wild with it, but we're able to control a lot of that because it's really a film built around the jump cut, and you could use a portion of take five and a portion of take one and a portion of take three any good moment from any of these takes and essentially make it feel like it was part of a one really, but it just feels edited for time because it's, 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 you know, the edits are supposed to be kind of jarring and in that jump cut fashion. So you're able to get away with a lot of bad improv and kind of circumventing your way through it and getting around it. Well, you know, and you, and you mentioned eight cameras. I mean, how, how much footage did you guys end up with overall? And, and, and how long did the edit take? I mean, how, how many hours were you putting in sort of each day um, in post on the edit? 
I think we must have literally had <clears throat> like 70 hours or something of footage. It was completely ridiculous. And some of the footage the was great. The ratio in the history of film. Yeah. <laughs> there would be part, part, like times where the actors would, you know, forget that their camera was running and go to like for lunch. So we'd be looking at a tape and it'd literally be like 45 minutes of it just sitting like against a wall or something. So there was, there was a huge, a huge job because we pretty much had to just sit there and like watch almost every you know, every second of it just to try to pull any moment that we could that was any good, but that definitely made it take a lot longer. Because, like, a lot of those actors' cameras weren't even slated properly, too, so you're trying to sync them to sound as well, and you're just like, oh, right. fuck. You're trying I to figure out what the hell the scene is. They're like, what is this scene? What the hell What the hell was this scene? What were we shooting here? What is this? What is <laughs> yeah, the footage of? You know, so, so how long were you guys spending in post? I mean, how how long was each day? I mean, were you guys putting in twelve hour days in the edit bay, or we edited yeah, the movie? Actually. Yeah, like when we pretty much did the movie, like like I literally just moved, kind of basically to Canada and just slept on Colin's couch in his uh, apartment for I don't know a year and a half or whatever it was until we got the movie done. So we were basically living together and just we had set up the, the computer in the middle of his living room and would just edit day in and day out constantly and i don't how long was it that we were in post uh, we cut i think we cut initially probably for like you know we had a rough cut that ran like two and a half hours like two weeks after shooting the movie basically and then we just kept fine-tuning it and fine-tuning it and i think probably after like a month or so we we took some time away from it and you know um I think you need to, if you're involved with the film for that long, you mm -hmm. kind of need to be able to back away from it and then come back to it with a fresh perspective. Months of, of editing actors' footage that you could barely tell what was going on and just trying to... It, there's an instance, like, with these sound footage movies, you're trying to... You're really trying to sell realism, and Stu said it earlier, how you're trying to create that signature feel. So that's why we, we approached it like that, and we, we knew that from you know, our primary cameras that there'd be great stuff, but if you were to hold on them for too long, it just starts to feel too cinematic. So we, we it was important that we, we allowed our actors to basically film whatever the hell they wanted to, so that even if it was something crappy that you would usually cut out of a picture, it, it could, you could shift in and you could help sell the realism of the, the situation and mm -hmm. just with the raw, um, camera operating skills basically so after post what did you do to restore your backs <laughs> our backs were all messed up because we were literally were we didn't even set up a desk i think because we were too excited we just wanted to start cutting so we were like okay we'll just temporarily use this coffee table as the place and then we'll get a, a real desk in here in a little bit and then the, the real desk never came so it was just the coffee table the entire time. I see. A couch and a coffee table. <laughs> there and, that you was go. The and a good chiropractor. <laughs> killing, pissing my neighbors off, too, probably. Because like, Stu had a rough sound mix as well. And we're like, you know, playing Demon Rowl sound at full volume at like 3 in the morning, like on a loop, trying to like fix them or whatever. And wow. Like, this is fucking going to just kill people in here. <laughs> What I'm wondering is, with a collaboration like the two of you have, you know, how do you know when one person should sort of steer the ship and then the other should take a back seat? Do you ever switch roles? 
Um, is there a division of labor? Does one of you tire of the project and the other one sort of carry the torch and then you pass it back and forth? Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we're still figuring out. It seems, I, I don't know, people ask about the collaboration. It's kind of just like, it just sort of works. I don't know how, how else to explain it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think part of it is the fact that we co-write together and that's a, that's a real collaborative, intense process because, you know, literally sometimes we'll, we'll write a script and we'll be going back and forth over just like dialogue, over like a few like lines of dialogue back and forth. So we're very much, you know, well, by the time the script is done, it's very like collaborative and it's both of our visions. And then, you know, we discuss all everything, all the shots, how we want to do it. And it's, you know, we just, we trust each other and respect each other so much at this point. I think initially when we started like working on script one, there was a lot more haggling and fighting and stuff like that. But at this point, it's just kind of like, you know, the catchphrase we always use is if someone has another idea that what the other doesn't agree with, it's just like, all right, well, sell me on it then. Sell me on the idea. How is the idea better? Okay. And then you give the other person a chance and they can break it down. And then you go, yeah, okay, you're right. My idea does suck. Your idea is better. <laughs> or, nah, it doesn't really work, you know? And we always end up seeing eye to eye, so... Yeah, and I think as far as actually being on set when time is of the essence and you can't, you, you might not have time to shoot everything two different ways if you're eye to eye. It's important during pre-production to plan and do your homework mm -hmm. because that's what filmmaking is. Filmmaking is your homework before you're on set. Like if if you don't have that, you're screwed basically. You know, so it's like a matter of really being inside one another's head, and we're both very vocal on set it isn't like one of us hides behind the monitor and the other directs the movie it's like we're constantly whispering in one another's ears about everything basically every decision is being is a joint decision and we're constantly being forced to sell one another on why this approach works why this approach works why this approach works and seeing eye to eye and it can be it can be um i think it can become a tiring process if you don't if you don't work closely enough before you're on set shooting, so you, you need to be able to like have the same vision going into it for sure. Mm. Well, thank you for touching on that. You know, and, and we want to touch on, we want to come back to this Tribeca distribution deal. Our understanding is you do have a, a deal with with Tribeca Film. So, you know, were you guys offered the deal before the festival, and and why did you decide to go with with this offer? I don't remember. Was it before the festival or after the festival? I can't remember. Uh, I think I think we we were negotiating it all the way up to it probably I don't I don't know but um I, I think like you know if you think and look at their slate this year I mean they're getting a lot of really cool movies they got Tony Kane's Attachment coming out and they're kind of like you know there's a lot of these distribution companies that that have really changed their models just their distribution model because the kind of the art house theater is sort of in a way dying so I think they're they're resorting to a new strategy of releasing movies and it's, it's, it's called day and date where you know they'll put it out a limited theatrical run and they'll they'll do video on demand simultaneously and it kind of eliminates that window system that hollywood loves um you know there's like ifc is doing a lot of day and date now and obviously magnolia and magnet run i think pretty much all of magnet stuff is day and date whether it's out, it, it might even be out on iTunes on like a premium rental before it's available on other 
formats. So there really there's a lot of experimenting going on with the way that films are released and and VOD is great because it's growing so much right now. I think I think like the whole piracy issue is like another thing you can easily stem this conversation to, but if you make the content super convenient for the consumers, which is what Tribeca and make and the companies are trying to achieve, then people are less, like, say say there's a movie that's in theater, and I may not want to see it until it's on video, because I just don't want to go to the theater and see it. Well, if it's a Tribeca movie, or an ISC thing, or a Magnet thing, I can have that choice, if that choice isn't my my audience isn't to torrent it and watch like a can version of it because it's only available in theater. The fact is that I can rent it right away on my on my uh, video on demand via whatever format you're into, Comcast or something like that. So I think that these these newer companies are pretty smart by creating the same date thing, but at the same time, obviously, I love the theatrical experience and I hope that that doesn't hurt that. Uh, revenue stream, but it definitely does make films available to a wider audience faster, and that's a good thing for a filmmaker because, you know, people's televisions are awesome these days, and the experience that I get sitting in my place watching a movie is arguably almost as good as the experience I get most of the time in the theater, just because, you know, it's a very youth-oriented crowd, and there's a lot of, like, bright text message screens going off or whatever. But people kicking your chair. So really yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Kicking chairs, filling <laughs> drinks on you. Right. And it's just, you know, it's obviously not more expensive to go out, and especially if you're, like, older and you've got a family and you need to hire a babysitter or something like that to, to leave the house. It's like, do you really want to do that and to go see a romantic comedy that is out? You know, you're probably more likely to want to rent it on your TV. So I think that the, the day and date strategy that Tribeca has is, is pretty ingenious. Yeah, and just as we wrap up here, we have like one minute left, but we just wanted to find out, you know, do you feel pressure to exceed the success that you've had with Grave Encounters? I mean, most of the people that we speak with, they, they come nowhere close to what you guys have achieved, and it's really amazing, but I'm sure that that's also, there's also another side to achieving all of that, because then there's that pressure to keep up with the the same momentum that Grave Encounters had. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we still... Yeah, we feel pressure, and we are, you know, we're working on it right now to try to, we want to go ten times bigger and better with the next film. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Colin, final words from you? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're not putting pressure on yourself and you're just complacent, then life is kind of boring. I think Stu and I, we stack just an unbelievable amount of pressure on ourselves to to be working on stuff and to trying to take it to the next level to the point that it's just a, it's a joke and that we drive each other completely insane doing that. So I think even though, you know, it's a negative thing to get so crazy about it, but at the same time, it's super positive because our drive is just through the roof. Mm, great stuff. Well, we've been speaking with the filmmaking duo, The Vicious Brothers, Colin Minahan and Stuart Ortiz. For more on The Vicious Brothers, please visit uh, theviciousbrothers.com, at Vicious Bros, and at Grave Encounters on Twitter, uh, graveencounterstriller.com, facebook.com slash graveencounters, and on IMDb. Yeah, and thanks so much, Colin and Stu, for joining us today. Looking forward to hearing about those uh, next projects and... Uh Absolutely. All that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a joy sitting back and listening to you this guys. You know, just listening to some young folks who really have a handle on their work um, and really have a handle on the business. Thank, thank you guys, yeah, for, thanks, for, guys. for sharing your experiences yeah, with us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us.